Good afternoon, you are with the panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman with you. Always a pleasure to be uh, joining you in the afternoons. Now, is the downturn over? If you look at how your house prices are tracking, it might well look that way. The latest data from realestate.co.nz shows post-election confidence has hit the New Zealand property market. During October, new listings were up and the national average asking price lifted back to January 2023 levels. National average asking price for uh, the month was $884,337. So let's look around the country. So 1.146 million for Auckland. That's up from 1,065,000 in August. Canterbury 714,000 up from 704,000 in August. You've got Hawke's Bay there 823,000 up from 791. And Wellington, 890,000, up from 839,000. So there's a few numbers for your main centres. So to give people a steer on the latest data, we have Vanessa Williams, Head of Marketing and Sales at realestate.co.nz. Kia ora, Vanessa. Kia ora, Wallace. Yeah, new listings were up, I see, 22% on September, so more than the average October lift of 16%. What are we seeing? Explain these numbers for us. Are we seeing, what, slight confidence up or what? Yeah, well, this year has been a really tough market for the New Zealand property market. Um, We have seen, during the year, we have seen some of the lowest new listing numbers in in significant months from around March right through till about July, some of the lowest of those months on record. And look, what does happen with the property market is there's a certain number of transactions that need to just happen because of... um, the need to transact and there's obviously a bunch that sort of want to transact and those sort of wants or those nice to have transactions haven't happened this year and we've seen really really low listing numbers so I would imagine that because there is you know certain amount of transactions need to happen that those new listing numbers will start to grow and I do think that looking over the last 16 years to see the jump from September to October typically be about a 16% uplift and this month seeing it jump to 22%, that does tell me that those green shoots post-election are starting to come into the property market. Okay, so what, yeah, people have been, no surprise really, is it? People have been sitting on their homes, uh, they might have wanted to sell, but oh no, well, sit tight, but you're starting to see a little bit of movement there. Yes, yeah, and look, I mean, that, that's very fair. If you look at the what we've feared over this year, we've had, we have had an election year and that does create uncertainty for Kiwis out there, especially when transacting one of their biggest assets. We've had weather challenges this year. The cost of yeah. living is obviously challenged right across. And then also there has been continual rises in the OCR, which has meant that the retail interest rates have continued to grow. And again, all of those uncertain factors do mean that I think people will go, just wait a minute, Let's see where I'm at, see what is happening. Let's get a bit more uncertainty, sorry, but more certainty with some of these factors before I'm going to transact. What are we seeing in Hawke's Bay, Jenny, anecdotally? Look, look, looking around you, I, I, I told you the figures, the average there, but if you look around your street, your area, do you see a couple of uh, listings up? Oh, gosh, there's, there's another yep. sign. 
Yeah, so we've I've noticed since I've been back, there's actually a lot of farms for sale out where we live. So, Is there? Um, yeah, and that's been a that's certainly a, a change from the last twelve months for sure. So, um, yeah, a lot more farms for sale and and more houses coming on in the little wee township Waipukarau, which is not too far from where we live. So, yes, I think people are feeling a bit more confident and a bit more certain, which is a good thing. So, yeah, no, definitely a difference in Hawke's Bay for sure. David? Oh, well, I live in Wellington, and I think Wellington, uh, sadly, has been about the hardest hit around the country. It's down 21% since the peak. Um, mind you, it went up, I think, 40% before the peak, so um, swings and roundabouts. Um, Ness is absolutely right. In any election, there's always a period of uncertainty, and as soon as it's over, people go, oh, at least I know what's going on, uh, and the cloud lifts, um, And no matter who's elected. And in this election... Um, National had a very pro-property-owning manifesto, as did ACT, uh, which, amongst other things, removed the bright-line test on property. That's the rule that said if you buy and sell properties, a number of them uh, more often than five yearly, uh, was proposed to go up to ten yearly, uh, then you would be pinged for full income tax on the winnings. Um, That's gone. And a special bonus for the property sector, um, interest deductibility on mortgage interest is back. So no wonder the property sector literally gave millions to certain parties uh, in the election campaign, and they've had a very good return on that investment so far. So um, uh, that will be coming through. doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do, but there will be uh, also in the background quite a tricky balance around interest rates. The previous rounds of interest rates rising uh, haven't yet flowed right through to the population. Um, We have got some people who have come off fixed mortgages, uh, sorry, yeah, fixed mortgages Mm. uh, last year, but there's a lot more coming up this year, and that will hurt. Uh, And what happens in future will be about the balance between spending uh, and taxation going forward. Spending's the accelerator pedal, pedal and taxation is the brake, so where that balance sits. There are so many variables, as uh, Dave has explained, Vanessa, aren't there, in the housing market. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at um, the price you pay, what the stock availability is like. I mean, we have seen some real challenges around the number of homes available for Kiwis. And I think that, you know, as we start to see those interest rates rise, um, obviously the development sector is impacted by those, which is where we're getting homes onto, the, you know, physically building more homes for Kiwis. We've also got immigration um, record numbers, yes, or you know, at least for the last yeah. couple of decades, anyway, and that's bringing a whole bunch of new people into New Zealand, but we're just not building the houses fast enough to house them, which then kind of drives that supply and demand challenge. Yeah, and of course, let's not forget too, Vanessa, that for much of my time on the panel, we'd have been talking whenever we talked about houses, we'd have been talking about the extraordinary price and cost of you know buying a house in this country, and it's only recently we've gone, oh my goodness me, they are going down. So again, that balance, because Mm. uh, you have to have a housing sector that's also affordable for first home buyers, right, Vanessa? Yeah, no, you're you're dead right there. Property is absolutely a spectrum. And, you know, there was a lot of talk um, prior to the election um, coming to fruition around, is there going to be challenges with national opening up the overseas 
investors into that $2 million mark. And, you know, looking at that sector of the market, that's actually not our challenge. If we had a bit more demand at that area of the market, I didn't necessarily see that as a, as a massive challenge. However, you're dead right. We do not have enough affordable housing in New Zealand where we have got the most demand for under that $500,000 market is just not satisfied. Okay, so can, I, can I jump in there? So that really is... That's really the real demand. That's the huge demand at around about 500 grand and a bit under. Yeah, yes. And when you look at the national average asking price being 884,000, you know, that is, and we're talking that's around a a three bedroom home, to be fair. You know, perhaps you want to look at one or two bedrooms for your first home or, or out in the regional New Zealand. But, you know, that does make it really challenging for people trying to get onto the ladder, especially, um, you know, with the cost of housing and also the cost of building in New Zealand. Very also, interesting, if you're coming, I guess the other thing too is you're coming out of university and you've got a massive student loan. Mm. Um, having that on top of trying to save up for your deposit, it's, it's pretty hard. I worry about that for, for our young people, that Indeed. ability to actually yeah. get on that property ladder. Vanessa, kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's Vanessa Williams from realestate.co.nz. Uh, I found that quite interesting, David. Uh, you know, that real demand is actually not the $2 million plus. It's actually the half-million-dollar homes, of which there are none in your city. Uh, that is true, and that's absolutely right. That's where the gap is, and if people uh, can't afford to buy, they get thrown onto the rental market. If they can't afford to rent commercial rentals, they get thrown onto the social housing market. And when there aren't enough state or social homes, then you get people living in motels. And so it's a nasty cascade. Of course we need an economy and a society where people can work hard, play by the rules and get ahead. And that does mean in New Zealand being able to get onto the property ladder at some bottom rung and work your way up. Otherwise, you're locked out. And then, you know, we've got a, an ageing population. We've got an increasing number. Half the people will be retiring without owning their own homes uh, and will be renting into their retirement. That's going to be really, really tough on National Super. Be interested to Wallace, hear. You, yeah, Jenny. I was going to say, Wallace, you can buy a house for less than 500000 in Waipukara. It's a great little town. Yes. Close to the beaches. Beautiful. <laughs> My, no, yeah. that sounds good. That sounds I'm coming, good. Jenny. <laughs> I'm yes. going to be looking on Trade Me in Real Estate uh, after the show and having a look at White Pocket. That doesn't sound too bad. But it's also a reminder, right, that yeah, there are those towns around the Motu that, uh, yep, you, you, there, there is that price. Uh, whether or not you can have uh, a job there as well. Uh, that's the other yep, issue as well, isn't it? There's yeah. jobs. Yep. Yep, there's uh, jobs. 18 past for the panel, RNZ National, Jenny Giblin, David Cunniff. Does New Zealand need a more working-class parliament? When we value the importance of diversity, does that also mean occupational diversity? Do we need more real people, is what I'm talking about? Where's your freezing workers, your carpenters, your blue-collar workers? I can recall, for example, former Green MP Keith Locke once worked in a car factory, then Auckland City Abattoirs. Our next guest has written a piece on just this issue, who says that this trend reflects the professionalisation of politics that has occurred since the 80s. With us, Dr Bryce Edwards, a political analyst in residence at Victoria University. Dr Edwards, welcome to the show. Sure, well. Yes, so let's take the 2023 intake of the, what, 40 new MPs, what sort of a makeup do we have here? 
Yes, so um, we won't know the final makeup until Friday afternoon, but at this stage, the 40 new MPs, they are heavy on business. So there's 10 that have business backgrounds, business owners. We have eight that are lawyers, seven that come from local government as uh, councillors, mayors. Uh, four come from a media background. There's a few accountants in there and um, a few ex-parliamentary staffers and also a lot of farmers, which is a really interesting change. Uh, historically, the number of farmers have actually been declining over the last few decades um, and there's only really been a handful in there. But this time around, um, we've got seven, seven of farmers. new MPs coming in and across all National Act and New Zealand First, there's now going to be 18 people with some sort of horticultural or farming background. So that's a bit of a revival for that rural sector. Okay, so no blue-collar workers among them. So before we go to our panel, we'll want views on this. You say we have done well with regards to diversity on ethnicity, age, gender, but less so on socio-economic diversity. Indeed, exactly. So our parliament is modernising, it's reflecting uh, the issues of sexuality, gender, ethnicity, so forth, but it's getting narrower in terms of socioeconomics class, basically. It's uh, becoming more middle class, more professional, and we do need lawyers, we do need business people, accountants, and whatever, but, uh, you know, it's sort of swung to one extreme, and so perhaps, you know, this is a time to reflect on whether we are having, yeah, a bit of a democratic uh, deficit by not having teachers, uh, nurses, and those sort of more yeah, working class. Uh, well, it um, just so happens we have a farmer on the panel, Jenny. Um, seven new farmers. This is this. Who cares? This is good news to you. This is brilliant. I am so wrapped. <laughs> it is fantastic. <laughs> so good because the farming sector has been you know, I would say pretty much ignored by previous governments. So I am delighted. I think it's wonderful. Oh, have they though? Great. They have, they have. They have. This is fantastic. But to Bryce's point, I do think that, you know, we're a House of Representatives and we do need people from a representative sector across across all sectors. So I'm with you, Bryce. I think it, we do need to have more diverse people in there. It is important to make sure we've got our blue-collar people representing. They've got, they've got fantastic ideas. We need to be aware of the pressures and challenges and opportunities that they want to push. So I, I agree with you. And one of the things that I find really frustrating is people that go from being in student politics, working in parliament, and then they become MPs. And I keep thinking, we need people there that have got more diversity and have had worked in various different roles um, and more life experience. So I agree with you, Bryce. Okay, stay there, Bryce. Oh, David Cunliffe, you'll, <laughs> you'll no doubt have views on this. Uh, yeah, harking back to time in a sharing gang and uh, farm work, absolutely. Um, I agree with Bryce. I think diversity is really, really important, and, and Jenny makes a good point that uh, it's all sorts, including life experience in the workplace and absolutely not just the university debating society or student politics through to a ministerial office and on. Um, so I think it's really important, but I also say that it's at, at all ends of the employment spectrum. Um, not everybody needs to be a cabinet minister, but it's a complex job managing a large or governing a large department uh, or a portfolio, and we need people also with really top-end skills and business and management and so forth uh, to ensure that there are people who can do those jobs really, really well so that the country benefits. So we need diversity. Some of those people might have worked up from the shop floor as well. I'm not saying that wouldn't be blue-collar workers, 
um, but we need diversity of real life experience. Bryce, do you think that politics then has moved away from you might call the everyday person? Has it well, become look, more prof- has it become more yeah. professionalised? Oh, it has, and it's not just New Zealand. Um, you know, globally, we're seeing rise of what Jenny was talking about: these career politicians, people coming in to politics at a much earlier age. And whereas in the past we used to have people that would be a farmer or a teacher, and uh, that would be their main career in their life, and then they'd come in basically for public service at the end of their career to give something back. And then we've seen a bit of a revolt against that, this rise of populism around the world, kind of the anti-elitist, anti-kind of insider uh, sort of vibe of people wanting more ordinary people. Uh, And I think that's why we've even seen people perceive, perhaps um, strangely, that people like Trump or Macron or Trudeau or even Jacinda Ardern are sort of outsiders, they're non-politicians. And so there has been this demand for uh, for real people to come in and... Uh, why, why does it matter? Why does it really matter if you get more blue-collar representation? If you're represented well, well, why would it matter? Yeah, no, good point. But um, if you're from a sort of higher socioeconomic group, you tend to have different priorities. Uh, you don't tend to understand maybe the cost of living and how it hurts or the housing crisis. And you tend to focus more on kind of social issues sometimes or, you know, um, yeah, the university issues as opposed to what's of concern in, in the smoker Would you agree with that, David? Uh, I'd contest some of the examples. Um, <laughs> Trudeau was, of course, the son of a former Prime Minister or Premier of Canada. Oh, yes. uh, couldn't, you couldn't be much more born to the political class than that. I think Macron's been a part of the political class since he was uh, in his early 20s as well. So um, I agree with the general point. Um, and look, life uh, takes all sorts of twists and turns. We need people with a diversity of life experience. Uh, we need people who can connect with their communities and also people who can govern complex uh, complex issues as well. Hmm. Interesting. Bryce, bit of a response on this, so I appreciate your time today. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Bryce Edwards, the political analyst uh, at Victoria University. Um, the late, great John A. Lee said, there is something to be said for the philosopher who also cuts the kindling wood, is a quote. And uh, many people are saying, hey, what? Teachers, nurses, midwives, they are not working class. They are professionals. However, I agree that Parliament would benefit from their input. So uh, there you have it. But nonetheless, you are absolutely over the moon with your seven new farmers there, Jenny. Good on you. Wrapped. <laughs> 26 past four, <laughs> the panel, RNZ National. Now, Oriental Bay residents, competitive for note here, Oriental Bay residents are clashing over Wellington City Council's proposal to allow dogs off their leashes on the beach during off-peak hours in summer, reports Ashley McCall on RNZ. Wellington City Council has proposed allowing dogs off-leash during off-peak hours, so that's before 10 a.m., after 7pm. Dog owners at Oriental Bay Beach told RNZ that they were all for it, but one IT worker, David, a big no. He said they pee on the blankets, they pee on the beach, and Councillor Nicola Young said children on the beach were more important than dogs. Uh, One just through here. If I peed on every gatepost, letterbox and power pole all the way down the street, and then I pooed on any chosen lawn, even if someone was picking up the bulk of it, society would be up in arms. 
I cannot understand this human need for dogs in towns, in beaches, in public places. Let's go around the panel. To you first, David. This is your city, Oriental uh, Bay. What's your thoughts? Dogs on beaches. My thought is, what is Wellington Council thinking? I'm a proud uh, owner of Doug, the uh, 11-month-old retriever. Yes, that's Doug from Up Come to Earth. And he is 30 kilos of fun and love. Uh, But sometimes he gets a bit exuberant. And if we've got him around kids, he stays on his leash. So what is wrong with taking a dog to the beach on a leash? Why on earth would you expect to be able to unleash your dog on a crowded inner city beach? What was Wellington Council smoking, people? What was Wellington City Council smoking, says uh, David Cunliffe. Perhaps they were smoking the freedom joint there, uh, David, because um, isn't it like a bird in a cage? That bird can't fly freely. Uh, your dog can't experience the wind in his or her hair uh, he, by he, being he, on a leash. He can if he goes up to the green belt and we let him off and there aren't a whole lot of kids lying on blankets and towels. And he's also got the massive expanse of the south coast or a whole bunch of other places. Oriental Bay, Bay Beach is one of the most crowded uh, little bits of square meterage you'll find in any city. Why on earth would I let 30 kilos of retriever bound around on top of a whole lot of preschoolers sitting on towels? Jenny. Well, I am a dog lover and a dog owner. We've got lots of dogs, obviously, at the farm, but we've also got Baxter, our uh, chocolate Labrador, and um, he doesn't very often go to town, but when he does, he is always on a lead. I agree with David 100%. I just think the thought of uh, children or people being on the beach and dogs running around not being on leads is potentially dangerous for some people depending on the dog um, but also the, the peeing and the pooing is just yuck um, so uh, look I just can't understand why um, why this has been been these limited hours have been introduced it should be completely banned and as David said there are other places but it's to after take dogs. seven it's after no one's on the beach after seven but no, it's also, no one's on the beach before 10 a.m. But, you know, people are on the beach in Oriental Parade after 7 o'clock in, in daylight saving. It's a great place to go and hang out. And, and also before, people are on the beach before 10 in the morning wandering around. I, I, I really disagree with that. And I think when you purchase a dog and you decide to take a dog, you think about where you can, where you can take it. And if that means you've got to put your pooch in the car and drive somewhere to give it a good run, well, maybe that's what you have to do. Okay. And... Yeah, no, totally agree with David on that. Very interesting. Well, okay, so our panellists have spoken very strongly on that, uh, absolutely in unison that under no circumstances should dogs be allowed off leash, leash rather, at Oriental Bay. Bay. Your thoughts, 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. You are with me, Wallace Chapman, and David Cunliffe, Jenny Giblin.